Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Expansive CEO Podcast. Today, my guest is Kristen D'Amato, and I am so excited to have this conversation with her because we're going to talk about some deep stuff that comes up when we talk about money stories and the grief and the shame that come with that. And we're going to do that in a really loving way way. And what I love the most, Kristen, about your energy around all of these topics is that you are so welcoming and you are so tender and you are so, um, you're just this warm presence where you are safe here. You are safe here. And so um, as we go through this, I would love for anyone listening to really like take a moment. Maybe this is this is one that you don't listen to while you're driving. Maybe this is like you take a moment and listen and really take in this episode and, and see what comes up for you in this same arena. Um, so Kristen has just written a book. It's coming out later this summer called We Choose Love. And it's it's such a gorgeous book. I was super lucky to get an advanced copy to be able to read parts of it. And so we're going to talk about a little bit more about that. I'm Chris, I'm going to have you introduce some of the concepts that are in there. And then we're really going to dive in on the emotional um, aspects of it as it relates to money. So Kristen, can you please introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us who you are, what you do and why, why, why should we choose love? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Hannah. Um, so let me start with the book first, since that's where you started. And it has, We Choose Love is is the bold title. And then there are a couple of subtitles that come along with it, which are redefining our relationship to healing and an empowered approach to chronic conditions and beyond. And this book has been a labor of love over the past seven years. I have worked on it and it's been the through line all the way all the way through those 7 years has been around this model of healing that i developed over my past more than a decade as a practitioner an an energy healer and it's called the wheel of whole body healing so the book goes through the seven different aspects of the wheel of whole body healing with different stories and um different exercises and it's really written to speak to all types of people. I spent a lot of time refining the language to make it as simple and clear and enjoyable to try to dilute some very intangible concepts into tangible and understandable, regardless of your belief system about healing and the body and and stuff. So that's the sort of entry point is it's really about how do we relate to our bodies? How have we learned to relate to our bodies and this idea of healing and where are our limitations? Where can we expand that, that idea? And this is a lifestyle guide in a way to be able to start playing with different ways to expand your relationship to healing and different practices to begin implementing to do that. Um, so a little bit about me (laughs) is, is that, so that I've been cultivating this body of work for many years now. It is, it's an evolving model. And more recently I, I shifted a, a few years ago out of the practitioner role and into more a role of, of guiding and teaching and holding space for individuals and, healthcare providers, both conventional medicine and alternative medicine to help them to be able to really refine their rapport in a way. And that's through really shifting their relationship to themselves so that they can show up differently for their patients and clients. And to be able to really go in and look at these different blind spots and hold them tenderly and get to know them and um, 
be informed how to make different choices through coming into relationship with them. So all of my work is really built around that and how we can come to know ourselves through the gifts that are inherent to us, that are our soul's imprint coming in here that we all have and we all have to share with each other and is such an invaluable contribution and being able to really come home to those and get to know them more clearly and be able to then express them in different ways and share them with the world. Mm. Yeah, that's what's what's really um coming to me now and I wonder if you'll if you'll talk about this story a little bit um to kind of move our way into what we're what we're um, talking about today. One of the stories that you tell in the book is about your time working in a very clinical setting and seeing mm-hmm. how, you know, with rehabilita- rehabilitating children mm-hmm. from, you know, tough situations, the clinical side versus the, you know, we're not, we're not working with the emotional body here. We're not helping these children in, you know, actually feeling safe. We're just talking about their different medications that are going to help, you know, different levels of, of, uh, chemicals in their brain. Right. So, and, and so when you saw that and you spoke to that and made a shift in the way that things were being practiced, um, can you, can you expand on that a little bit? Maybe tell a little bit of that story, um, Mm -hmm. just how important it is to, to look at both sides. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel like that's one of the key missing elements in, in conventional medicine anyways, is, is the humanity and there's the pathologizing, the fixing, that's the model. It's a mechanistic model. It is brilliant at fixing the body when it breaks in acute situations, acute traumas. Um, however, there often is this missing component of like, we're humans it's a human dealing with another human here and we're allowed we're allowed to be human as practitioners and providers we're allowed to be human it's welcome to be human like it's not a problem you're not wrong you're not um you know lacking in your ability to be an expert when you show up as a human in the role of doctor and so um the story that Hannah's referring to is when I was working, I worked part-time as a teacher and then part-time in a re- in the house in a residential community for kids who were transitioning out of the psych ward and back into integrating, the ultimate goal was integrating back into their lives at home and in school. And so this was a home and school environment that they lived at in the transitional period. And I was the only one at the time who did not have a clinical training. Um, So I would be in the panel with all of the other people as we were discussing each child's situation and how to best serve them. And so they were all coming from the perspective of tweaking one of the, I mean, they were all on like nine to 14 medications, these kids, you know? And so they're just like, how do we fine tune this and tweak this? And I, I was at least there, the only one bringing forth the the question of like, well, first of all, we're making the kids a problem. Mm -hmm. What about where they came from? Is anyone talking about that or looking at that? And in this, in this instance where I was in this situation, it wasn't, the kids were the problem. There were problem behaviors. That was a problem that needed to be fixed. That was the orientation. And all of the kids were coming from a background of some some sort of negative relationship to touch. Um, And we weren't allowed to touch them. Mm-hmm. So here's this situation where we're supporting them and hopefully giving them examples of how to be healthy human beings to shift into the the wider world again. Yet no one is teaching these kids how to incorporate touch as a positive, beautiful, healing thing. 
So I started to kind of nudge and push the edges as I tend to do. And I, at the time, this is many years ago, I had completed a um, yoga teacher training. And so this was an easy entry point for me because at that point, yoga was starting to become more mainstream and people were were hearing about it and open to it. And so I, I offered a yoga class. And in that, I was able to start to incorporate a little bit of loving touch where it was just like a gentle, a gentle correction here, or, you know, these different micro kind of touches you do in a yoga class to be able to help them deepen in a posture. And so with a lot of care and consent, I was able to start to teach these kids without language how to receive touch in a way that was that was kind that really quickly led to me being the go-to person for all those kids when they were in crisis i was the one that they wanted called in to help deflate the crisis and that really opened the eyes to the people around me and i fortunately had a supervisor at the time who was really seeing, he could see me and he could feel what I was doing. And he, he just was like, I'm just going to step back and and watch her and like, let her do her thing. And the others can, the other um, people that were working there can kind of chatter in my ears about she shouldn't be doing this and that and this. And, you know, he's, so he like held this space for me to explore a little bit. And the results happened so quickly that it ended up helping transform the way that all of them started to relate to the kids. The simplest shifts make a massive difference. And now hopefully those kids, and hopefully it's continued throughout the years, where there are some examples of loving touch that they can then bring out into their life and that they can, when they, with their friends, with their family, when they start getting into relationships with boyfriends and girlfriends and that they're going to know how to do that in a way, they'll have another example of what it means to be loving with your touch and not Mm -hmm. harmful. And that, I mean, it just, it like kicks off that, the whole, you know, the wheel right? Of whole body, whole body healing. Um, the concept that you, that you present in the book just so beautifully in, because it's like you said, it's, um, you've compartmentalized people when we, when we see things in this way, right? Like here's your, here's your clinical diagnosis and your clinical needs. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we're, we're separating that away from again, the emotional body, the spiritual body, the, even the, the physical body, because you know, everything else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, like it's so narrow. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, we're just going to treat this part. Um, and I wanted to bring that story in because it's so similar to what we do with our money. Hmm. Because when we do the same thing, when we, um, pathologize the way that we are with our money or when we, um, when we, you know, say, you know, I'm not good with money or I, you know, have money and I don't know what to do with it, right? Like all of the stories that come up, if we just create a plan, I've said this so many times, uh, cause I used to do this just, if we just create a plan, it could be beautiful and it could be, you know, all the options that will get you exactly from where you are to where you want to go and have all the pretty charts and graphs and have all the check boxes of how do you get there? Do this, do this, do this. When we just intellectualize it all, it doesn't actually transform our relationship with money. Because when I say, okay, in order to, to, you know, send your kids to this college, if that's one of the goals, you're going to have to save we'll say $2,000 a month until they're, you know, a junior in college. And that's when you can stop saving that, right? Like sometimes that's an actual goal that people have and we'll see. And okay, yeah, I want that result. But then when they try to start 
doing the step to do the outcome, to get that outcome, everything else pops up. Mm-hmm. The reasons why they can't, the reasons that, um, you know, something comes up and takes that money away for that goal, right? And it has to go somewhere else. And then the shame and the guilt. Oh, now we're farther behind. Oh, we're still not where we're at. And so then it becomes, you know, the guilt of I'm not doing enough. I need to do better. Just compounds and compounds and compounds until that person stops trying altogether. And I say that because it's it's like I've seen it, I've witnessed it. And it wasn't until I realized the difference here that, oh, it's not about the charts and the graphs and the data. It's about how the client feels about the charts and the graphs. So this, yes, it's important to have that information, just like in you know a clinical setting, it's important to understand mm-hmm. what's going wrong, right? Or what's what's going right, what's helping. It's important to understand that. But then it's the emotional side, it's the feeling side, what's what's coming up when we talk about this. That's what we have to address so that you can then actually realize those goals. Yeah, the narrative side of it, like the story, what's the story that's going on inside of ourselves and our heads? What's the story that's going on in the example I used in that room? The in the community that we're all talking about, what's the story that's going on in in our culture? in the larger community, what are these narratives that we have about our relationship to money and how is that contributing to our choices that we make around money? Yeah. Yes. And so here are the few things that I, that I really, um, that we'll, we'll navigate our way to and through, um, is one, what are some of those messages Right. We talked a little bit about that and um, how we're how we're experiencing money in our lives. But then uh, once you do identify those, once you do identify the feelings, how do you then move through them? Mm. Right? And so you have some really beautiful processes in the book of like, OK, here here are some exercises to try to help you sit with those emotions and actually identify not just the surface, but what's underneath and then what's underneath that yeah. so that we can actually make a change. Mm-hmm. Yes. So what are, what's coming up for you? What's the story that you want to tell right now as we move through? Well, I'm thinking about shame with money in particular and there's so many layers of that that I've navigated in my own story and I'm continuing to navigate. It's not like a one and done deal at all. And it's coming from so many, there's so many layers. Mm-hmm. I, I named a minute ago, just a few of the narratives where they're coming from. And when we first were connecting about having this conversation, I was really interested in the grief that lies underneath the shame. That's like the, that's, so there's the shame. Mm-hmm. I think to varying degrees, certainly I, my, you and I are, and then the listeners as well are aware of the voices of shame that pop up around money and their money stories. And if, if they're not, they're, they're available. They're right under the service. If you sat to listen, you'd probably hear a, uh, something from when you were growing up of one of your parents, maybe maybe a conversation between the two of the adults in the house that they were having and how that impacted your, your life now as an adult or um, something that you saw in a movie or just like some these different narratives that made an impression on you that left this feeling of kind of this icky, sticky shame that's in relationship to money. And Underneath shame or alongside shame, there's this deep grief that I feel like a lot of time people don't ever get to. And one of my loves is grief work. And one of the containers that I feel really passionately about and have for many years now supported primarily women, women, it's been in grief circles. 
Um, but bringing these spaces back where we can be with our grief and where it's welcome in all of its faces. And there's an immense amount of grief that comes from shame and being and shaming and the self-shaming. Mm-hmm. An immense amount of grief. So much so that it's often terrifying to even approach. Yeah. I know in my experience, I I tend to have, I have an avoidant attachment style. So I've been like, you know, that's something I've been navigating throughout my life is like, how do I, how do I stop avoiding and come toward when something gets uncomfortable for me? And so this one is just like, this is, this is like the frontier going into the terrain of shame and the grief that lies underneath the shame. There's so much heartache there. For me, it has looked like the heartache of containment and limitation around my potential. Mm. And how all of the the external stories that I received throughout my life have contributed to me shaming myself to stay small. And as an entrepreneur, my gosh, it's like you're ever having to 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 be open to expansion and to putting yourself out there in in innovative ways. It's a risk taking, you know, it's risk one risk after another. Yeah. And with each of those risks is is a at least semi-conscious saying yes to the possibility that there's going to be judgments coming in from yourself and from others. Mm-hmm. And how do those connect with shame and self-shaming? And then what do we do? And then what do we do? And like for for me, and this is the grief part is like, and we'll get more into this later. And it's like, you have to acknowledge the grief. You need to give yourself space to grieve. Mm-hmm. And create yeah. container for that. Create safe containers alone with others. It doesn't necessarily matter. They serve different, they have different, um, beautiful, they're, they're beautiful in different ways. The thing that's like coming forth for me is that, that feeling of, especially in, especially in entrepreneurship, you know, that's our crash course in self-development, self-development really, um, right? If you go all in on yourself in entrepreneurship, you're going to have these things, you know, show up over and over again as you go to promote yourself, promote your business, um, work with clients, deal with unhappy clients every so often, right? Like that's all going to be um, the space where, like you're saying, not only are you facing the judgment outside, mm-hmm. more importantly, you're facing your own self-judgment. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and that, so that was fascinating to me um, to start to recognize and move through mm-hmm. is that most of it was me judging me. And most of that was self-imposed limitations and stories that I was making about, you know, all kinds of things really. Um, but the ones like what I'm, what I'm like remembering viscerally right now is gosh, that must've been two years ago. Um, you know, like feeling like I need to figure this out. I need to figure it out. I, you know, I, the clients were not coming in the door right at that moment. And I was, I was like trying and trying and trying and trying to figure it out and just feeling so, um, 
emotionally broken open and literally screaming into my pillow and like getting emotions moving out of my body Mm -hmm. so that I could then choose to take a new action step. And so it was, you know, all of this, the fear around, you know, not growing the business, not making enough money, not being able to, you know, support my family, all of those things um, were coming up and just, you know, piling on top of the self-judgment already of why is this not happening faster and more easily? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and I, yeah. I think one of the approaches, at least that I've experienced is, is a bulldozing over those voices. And you can be successful, successful in terms of making money as an entrepreneur by bulldozing over those parts of yourself. Mm-hmm. There's many people that we see in the world that have that have done a version of that. Yet that doesn't contribute to wellness. Right. It's not actually like, so I guess it's entrepreneurship as a embracing it as a healing journey is what we're talking about here. And that's different than just entrepreneurship. All this stuff comes up for every entrepreneur. What you do with it is embracing it as a healing journey or not and squashing down and continuing to shame and bully those parts of yourself. Mm -hmm. And never grieve. And most likely end up with physical symptoms making yourself really sick, potentially ultimately dying from it. Right. Which is what we end up seeing when people keep, like you said, bulldozing over their emotions mm-hmm. and don't allow any space, don't allow any space for self-reflection, don't allow any space for um, celebrating how far they've come truly who end up numbing everything in one, you know, one way, shape or one way, shape or form, um, whether that's alcohol or, you know, um, drugs or social media or whatever numbing behavior Mm -hmm. that takes you away from feeling the stress. And on my side, when I see um, people who just cannot wait to retire, like, how soon can I stop doing this? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the only goal is to make enough money to stop doing the thing that they're doing because it essentially is not healthy in the first place. Like, they're they're so unhealthy and unhappy with everything that the only thing that matters is getting out with enough money that they never have to work again, which typically does not happen. Right. That's that's definitely a yes, it happens every once in a while, um, but it is not the norm. And most people who get stuck in that cycle have a very hard time getting out if they won't ever look beneath the surface. Yeah. So tell me what comes up for you when you when you think about that. So when we're when we're talking about um these stories, because we started, we, uh, when we were prepping for the conversation, started talking a little bit about more bigger societal. Yeah. I was just going to jump in there. Cause I had a, you, you created a perfect segue. Yeah. <laughs> that's where I was going. Nature. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of look at that because I think it really ties in. Yeah. Right. Well, I was actually going to use, use it as an example so that people listening could have a more tangible example of how this might apply to their life pretty directly. Um, So we were talking a little bit about the the cultural relationship, not just currently, but through the recent generations of, of money and making money and how there are gender roles that have been attached to that. And so for example, how it has played out in the many decades is that women are more disempowered around money and tend to, there tends to be more of a, they're being controlled because their spouse is the one who makes the money or their partner is the one who's making the money. They are in jobs, if they're working at all, that make less money, or it's like 
underpaid um, or not paid at all moms, teachers, these caretaking kind of roles and undervalued, underappreciated um, in the, the role sort of schema there or the male, the, the man, it's more like provider at all costs. And that's a measure of your success as a man and the immense amount of pressure that has been on that role. Now, there's a lot more complexity and nuance to that as we're starting to break down gender roles more today. And women have obviously been working as a more common thing for many decades now. I'm bringing in a lineage piece here that is a direct transmission to every single one of us that we have all experienced. And it is still alive in our culture today. It's not as overt as it was then. It's still here. And so to not ever take the, to not ever acknowledge and take the opportunity to have a grieving process around the limitations that, for example, I'll speak for myself. I, I'm at, as a, speaking as a woman and through my lineage of women, the incredible amount of disempowerment that has come and is very intertwined with relationship to money and the opportunities, the missed opportunities, the incredible amount of feelings of unworthiness. You can't just push that away and pretend it doesn't exist. It's there. It is alive and all of our cells and to not take time to bring those feelings into your internal room and sit with them and acknowledge them and have a big rage or a big cry or both and then some probably over and over and over again as you go through different stages and you have these moments that are reflected to you that trigger this ancestral memory as well as potentially this lifetime experiential memory of feelings of disempowerment and unworthiness. The, this is, oh my gosh, um, it's reminding me of the episode I did with Melanie Klein and we Mm -hmm. talked, it was, it was so, I mean, it's just so on point um, from a sociological lens as well, right? Because it's not, when we talk about lineage, sometimes sometimes that gets lost in translation of, no, this is like your mother experienced this mm-hmm. and you watched it growing up. And not only did you watch that, but if you had grandparents nearby or aunts or uncles, like we hear their voices. It's not just a matter of, you know, what's happening in the culture today, but, you know, but for my example, my grandmother lived in Pennsylvania during the Depression. Mm-hmm. She was a teenager during the Depression, and it was up to her to, like, help keep the family afloat. That was my grandmother. And so the way that she acted with money, I witnessed as a child. And even as a, I mean, she she passed away when I was in my um, early 30s. So, you know, I mean, I had a lot of time with her. And mm-hmm. so when we think about that, it's not, it's not so far um, removed from us. When we think about our generational money stories and our generational traumas around how we are, you know, how we are re- moving through the world with regards to money. And, you know, our mothers being part of the generation, you know, that was like the way that I, um, I've heard this spoken about recently that I really resonate with is, is like, they were the generation where it was like, no, you should, you should be working. You should have it all, but also you should be the one doing 98 to hundred percent of the work at home. They were the ones figuring that out. And now 
our generation, right? I'm an older millennial. Um, and my generation is like, we don't want to do that. Right. We, we, we recognize how different it can be, right? Like I know I, I don't want to work full-time and do 95% of the household upkeep and the mental labor and all of that on top of, um, what's happening in, you know, in our economic status. Mm -hmm. And from the wealth advisor lens, you know, I, I see lots of, lots of discussion too, of like, is that real? You know, women, women have all the opportunities now. Um, I've even heard sometimes, you know, this, the statistics about more women going to college than men now, you know, the percentages are higher. There are more women in med school and in law school, like, okay, interesting. Interesting that that's the argument that's coming back at us while the wage gap is still there. Yeah. That's still a thing. And when more women are going into the medical field, more of them are going into family care, pediatrics. Like you're saying, the lower paid. These are the, these are the lower paid. This is not the, the radiologists and the anesthesiologists who are you know, like some of the top paid positions in the medical field. That's not, that's not the split that's happening. Um, and so this, this societal conditioning around women still being in lower paid or unpaid positions still comes through. It's still the construct that we're, we're functioning in. Yeah. You know, there's not, there hasn't been, though there's been a shift in who is getting those jobs, who's going to college and stuff over these recent decades, there's the construct, the system hasn't really shifted around that. It still has this uh, very patriarchal lens that it's coming through mm -hmm. and it's not, yeah, it's like one step forward instead of like a great leap forward is how I'm seeing it. Like in each of these examples too, it's um, like without, without feeling the emotions, it's one step forward. Great. There's evolution happening. There's growth happening in one step forward in each generation. I feel really excited about a massive transformation. Not one step. Like, I don't have the patience for one step forward. I'm just kind of like, we don't have to do it that way. We get to, we get to change this in a big way. However, to do that, there needs to be an awareness and a willingness to feel it all. Otherwise it won't be embodied. Right. And it's kind of like, we're learning that it's like more like technical in a way. Mm -hmm. It's like, we're learning the mechanics of how to do this, but we're not like really doing it. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that in because this, this has been a theme for me, like this whole year, the sense of like, yes, we're intellectualizing. Mm -hmm. And that's even that looking at the statistics, you know, talking about women can talk until we're like blue in the face about, you know, yes, the, the gaps are still there. This is how I feel. Right. And, but it's still, you know, like all just hitting up here in the brain. Mm -hmm. Here's the information. Oh, well, I'm going to go dig and find other information then that, you know, might support my claim instead of honoring the deep, like you're saying the feelings of you are not seeing me. Yeah. We're not value. I, I feel undervalued. I feel unworthy. I feel undeserving of because of the. And I'm not seeing myself. Right. I'm not worthy to myself. Right. Once that shift happens, a systematic shift will happen because there's there wouldn't be toleration for functioning in a system that doesn't value that worth that you have now anchored within yourself that comes from embodiment. Mm -hmm. The intellectual part, I don't want to minimize the importance of that. I think there, that's like a beginning stages of awareness. Yeah. 
that's what starts the fire sometimes for some people. For me, definitely. Mm-hmm. I, I am right up there with being an intellectualizer. <laughs> yes. Um, so I love it. I love it. I mean, I'm getting my doctorate right now. It's like, I love information. I don't want to minimize or certainly not make that wrong. It's like, that's, that is an important entry point for, for many, I would say in, in this culture mm-hmm. um, to start gaining some awareness and to start the, start the passion, to kickstart the passion and get the fuel to have the courage to be able to go in and start to be present with the emotions and to start that deeper embodiment process. Well, that that gets to the heart of it, literally and figuratively, right? That where, yes, when we can intellectualize things, I agree with you. I am fascinated by information um, and I can I can take stuff in all day long. My husband is very analytical, right? And so again, like the logic and and the analysis of everything that's going on like that's the difference i feel is that if we if we just keep it there mm-hmm. that's the that's the issue so like you're saying the embodiment piece of it so when we're when we okay yes i i understand this intellectually i want to i want to understand it in my system i want to be not triggered Right. When when something happens that that hits one of those cognitive distances. Yep. Um, that's the that's the embodiment piece. And just so we because you you brought this in earlier, too, and I want to I want to bring it um, to the table so that it's like. It's very clear that this system hurts everyone. It hurts both sides. Right. You you said this um, first where on the the male side, the masculine side of like, I must provide and the stress that comes with that. It's not just the stress. It's that if you can't provide to the level that you want to mm-hmm. in a masculine role, the shame that becomes debilitating. Yes. And so to, to see, to see how this plays out on all sides, this is, this is it. This is the work, right. Is to, you know, when we, when we see everyone, it's not just the women, it's not just saying, you know, for women, I see that you've been undervalued and I honor that it's seeing for the men that how much pressure you've been under, Mm -hmm. how much shame that has caused when you have not been able to, when you feel like you have fallen short of your goal. Yeah. I I touched on it. Yeah. I touched on this, um, it, this hits very close to home with me because I, my, my father, my biological father, he, um, he carried such an immense amount of shame and I believe grief that was related to not knowing how to provide, you know, it's like, this is an interesting part too. When with my parents, I'm a little bit older than you, but like with my parents, they were having kids when they were like 20. You know, that was normal to get married and have kids when you're 20. I mean, imagine that. Like I had, I had my kid when I was 34 and 43. Like that was a lot more life experience under my belt. Mm-hmm. And, and between those two children, the immense amount of growth that I experienced, I, I mean, would I have been able to raise a kid at 20? Yeah. To a certain degree. Like I, I know how to be like a loving, kind human, you know, but like, wow, leagues different being able to have some life experience. And his dad died when he was young. Um, and I don't think he knew how to provide and he ended up, and he had quite a tender heart. He was very charismatic. That was like his number one gift, I think. And he um, he just collapsed. I mean, he was a hardcore alcoholic and he had other serious addictions and his whole life crumbled. And he he also was an entrepreneur, though he never really would get anything off the ground. Mm. And so... Um, I, I haven't seen him since I was a young teenager, but I did spend time with him in my early years. And that, 
those are deeply imprinting for all of us, the deepest imprints. Right. So this is the image that I have of him. And my mom, on the other hand, was the one who was making, she was raising us. I lived full-time with my mom who worked two, sometimes three jobs. And he was not financially contributing at all, nor was he in the picture, even when they were technically still together. He just wasn't around. Um, so I, this is how I learned, right? And like, talk about being laden with shame on both ends of the, in this case, the male father role and the 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 female woman mother role. And so much... There, there was just so much, there was a lot of survival that was happening. And then in addition to that, I mean, wow, what a gift that I can contemplate this stuff right now that I don't, that I'm not in a state of survival. So like, that's something to just say right there, mm -hmm. you know, like I, I'm not concerned about where I'm getting my, my food to feed myself and my children the next day. Yeah. This is a whole other conversation when that comes in. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I grew up very much with both of those being very present, massive degrees of shame. And, and he never, he never quote unquote succeeded. He never learned how to provide for his kids to the point where he doesn't have a, he has four children, has a relationship with none of them. He let, he left as did a lot of dads in that generation, right? It was like, wow, I mean, there's a whole another sociological rabbit hole we could go down. Like what was going on there in terms of pressure and like pulling that apart around shame to provide and like not doing it well enough and not having the tools or anything, any capacity to be able to be supported in moving through this shame and and grieving and growing well there was such a it there was such a such a need to just get through it i feel like right or or that was the that was the messaging was like um especially on the on the masculine side to be a man just man up be a man figure it out don't show emotions boys don't cry all of that so everything, anything that would have, you know, uh, attempted to start to peel back those layers, there was all of that social conditioning around, no, 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 we don't do that. Yep. And then the backlash, right, where the women became more hyper-masculine. Right. And like, and adopted those. Yeah. I mean, my mom was one of those just like, do not feel, keep going. Like, you can only rely on yourself, like, go. You know, like just keep, it doesn't matter what is happening. Keep going. Bulldoze, bulldoze, bulldoze. Survival. Yeah. Survival. So how do we move through once you have this awareness, right? So once, once you, once you hit on that thing where you're starting to feel that sense of, okay, I, I do. Okay. I do have a story coming up from childhood and it is like, I, I am like feeling the, the first signs of feeling the emotion again. Mm -hmm. When I work with clients, when we go through the money story meditation experience, that's a really beautiful opening into some of those stories that come up. And a lot of times tears start flowing. And people start saying, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that this was still in there or that this was impacting, you know, my mom saying there's, there's not enough mm -hmm. and that translating to there will never be enough. Or, you know, parents saying, you know, we make do just make do with what you have. Just always make do. And what, what that does to your psyche when you're trying to build a business later on. And it can feel really tender. So what do you, what do you outline as your process when something comes up that you're like, it starts to feel tender rather than 
bottling it back up. Oh, I don't want to feel that. I'm going to, I'm going to stop. What do you suggest as the step to embody it, feel it? I want to speak directly to what you just asked me. And before we get to that part, there's, I think this is a really good place to bring in the difference between emotions and feelings. And emotion being that raw, like it's just coming up. You feel it, right? There's It's sensation-based. You feel the constriction in your throat. You feel your eyes, your eyes start welling up with tears. Um, and I'm using the word feel, so that might be confusing by me saying that because I'm talking about emotions and feelings. So hopefully that won't be confusing to you by me using those that language. Um, feelings are the story that we create around that the meaning that we start making around the emotions that we're experiencing. So that's where the hooks start coming in. Mm. So coming to your question more directly, starting to develop awareness to kind of like pull apart those two things and not use them synonymously, feelings and emotions, but recognizing them as actually two different things. Mm. And we're going to be talking about the emotions, the physiological responses that are happening when the sensations, it's sensation-based. A lot of the, the work that I do, it's somatically based. It's based in sensation in the body. So when you start to notice that something is, is happening, slowing down, pausing, slowing down so that you can take a moment. And this can happen like you can do this in seconds, especially once you've practiced it and get more, more, more practiced at it, but slowing down and being able to tune inward and what sensations am I feeling right now? Starting to cultivate a body awareness. So much of what I'm talking about in the book is how to learn to decipher and translate and understand the language our body is speaking to us all the time. And it really is a language. Like you have to learn it in the same way that you would learn a foreign language, even though it's your body and you've been living in it since your whole life, you know, there's this nuanced way that it is always communicating to you. And developing listening skills for what it's saying is the is the bigger, longer goal. In those moments, slowing down and tuning into where the sensation's happening, the one that feels most present, like or like most um, that's loudest, mm -hmm. is the first step. So for example, maybe you're, you're feeling a pressure on your heart. Just bring your attention to that pressure on your heart. Maybe you're feeling a tightness in your jaw and you can use your hands to like touch wherever that spot is to help your, help you focus your attention to that place. Helps you kind of slow things down a little bit too. When you touch the spot. Sometimes just doing that is you giving yourself permission enough to feel whatever is bubbling up and right there. Sometimes you need to take it a little step further. And you can start to get curious and ask what's coming up there. Ask yourself. We're comprised of many parts within ourselves. So asking yourself, what is this tightness in my chest communicating to me right now? Is there anything you want to communicate with me right now? And gifting yourself the presence for those few moments to listen in whatever form it comes, an image, a sound, a memory, a feeling, a or like a sensation. That already starts to really shift the trajectory. There's other steps that we can continue going down this road to keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper. 
but for now, taking that time and giving yourself that gift of presence and listening is such an immense gift that we have not learned to do. I mean, this is like a fundamental humaning skill that we have not learned to do. Yeah. For ages, we did it more when we were in tribal societies. Our listening skills to ourselves, to each other, to the land, all of that was much more honed. And there was an interconnection that people were aware of within ourselves, with each other, with the land, with everything. So this is like a, this is a baby step to, to remember that connection to yourself through presence and listening. Mm -hmm listening to the sensations that appear when something starts to activate you. And this can be used in any situation. Anytime you start having an emotional response to something, be present with it. And oftentimes it will just move right on through like toddlers in a minute, in two minutes, if you really are present and you just let it come up and out, it's amazing. We know how to do this. That's our natural state. We've trained ourselves to not do it. Mm -hmm. So returning back to that natural state of being, we know it. It's just remembering it, giving ourselves permission to go there. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for walking through that, Kristen, because it's so, like you said, it's, it's a remembering of what we already know, but so many people have never given themselves the permission to, to let it feel let let the emotions actually move through mm-hmm. and that's what gets them stuck so and the stories and the story yes attaching and- to the stories and making it mean something and when you are making it mean something you could be crying but if you're circulating this story about what it means about you or that person or like you know anger is a perfect example or resentment just like that person, dot, 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 you know, like digging in. When you're making a story about yourself or another, even if you're screaming and yelling and crying, and you're not actually letting the emotions move. It's a, it's a cycle that's going round and around and around. You can cry for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. It's not actually being present and like letting the emotions move and the emotional energy move through you. It's the opposite, actually. It's holding on to it with this story. Mm. Oh, we could go for another hour, I'm sure. <laughs> Easily. Yes. Easily. <laughs> There's so much. Um, but I really, I really want people to uh know where to find you and where to find the pre-sale of the book. Um, so tell us, tell us what if people want to dive in deeper. Right. Again, such a beautiful book. And it's so just like you said at the beginning, it's it's accessible. Mm-hmm. I want to say. Like that's it's that's a really good word for it. It's like, yeah, it it is something that almost anyone could pick up and read and understand and work through. Um, so yeah, how can how can people get there? Yeah. So the, the pre to pre-order, you can go to my website, which is Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N, D-A-M-A-T-O D-A-M-A-T-O.com, all one word, Kristen, D-A-M-A-T-O.com. 
And there are multiple buttons on the website where you can navigate around and you can learn a little bit more about the book and see what some people are saying about it. And um, yeah, you'll you'll get to learn a little bit more about me while while you're navigating around there as well. And I'm very excited for it to come out. It has been, like I said at the beginning, a labor of love. And it's something that I feel really excited to to gift out into the world and help to allow people to remember and and transform and expand their relationship of what is possible within themselves that they just need to to come home to. Mm. Thank you. I'm I'm so excited. I'm so glad that we had this conversation. I'm so excited to get a physical copy and have it here on my bookshelf um, with everything else. It's so beautiful. And thank you. Thank you again for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much much. for having me. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at ExpansiveCEO.com and tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, you can find ways to work with me at ExpansiveCEO.com and at XSquaredWealthPlanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, WealthPlanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.